The following podcast contains spoilers. Check the episode description to see the exact times of the segments that contain spoilers. Hello, everybody. I'm Matt Zoller Seitz, TV critic for New York Magazine and Vulture.com. My co host and editor, Gazella Mami, is away this week, so I'm going to be flying solo. We'll see how this goes. I think we've got a pretty cool lineup of segments, lots to talk about, including a major, major, major thing that happened on Game of Thrones. Major, major. We'll talk about that with New York Magazine senior editor Jennifer Vineyard. And then we've got a segment on dream sequences and another segment on the tradition of mixing politics and sociology with laughs on the American sitcom. And we've got Variety's Maureen Ryan, Alan Sepinwall of HitFix.com, and Nicole Perkins of Vulture and many other fine publications to talk about both of those things. Uh Uh-oh. That ominous music signals the incipient arrival of sorcery and the supernatural on Game of Thrones. In case you were on Saturn or living in a nuclear fallout shelter, you now know that Jon Snow, who was betrayed and killed at the end of Season 5 of Game of Thrones, returned to the land of the living this past episode with help from the sorcerer Melisandre. Here to talk about that is New York Magazine senior editor and Game of Thrones aficionado Jennifer Vineyard. Jennifer, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So let's jump right into it. What did you think? What did, was this was this worth the wait? Was this worth the build up? Was this worth the double back fake out reversals? <laughs> How do you well, feel? Well, I mean, I kind of saw this coming. So, I mean, to me, it's not the same thing. I mean, I just wasn't entirely sure exactly how they would do it, and it was nice in a way to see that people kind of gave up on waiting and walked out of the room, and then he was alone when it happened. So that that part was a little different, but. Um, Maybe for people who weren't anticipating this quite so much and were living or dying on the, is Jon Snow alive? (laughs) You know, maybe for them that was like a huge momentous moment of their life that was worth everyone lying to them for all these many months. But (laughs) I know. (laughs) Just something about it. I got to admit, I I was really underwhelmed by the sequence itself. I, I just was really like, really? That's it? I just wanted something more, like some magic or some element of the uncanny. It just seemed like, what, she's, you know, she repeats an incantation a few times, they all leave the room, and he's like, I'm back! You know? I don't know. Well, maybe we'll get the more in the next episode when he actually kind of sits up and presents himself to everyone. I, th- I think the whole thing, what, what we saw before when Thoros of Mir did this to Bar- Dondarrion was that it wasn't really a huge magic moment, right? It's just he said the incantation, he said some words, and then Barrett kind of popped up. So maybe it's not as magical as we think it should be. And maybe also the, what happened to Barrett should also be a warning here to us that for everyone who's been so anticipating that Jon Snow would be alive, they haven't really considered what that might mean for him. Maybe he doesn't want to be alive at this point. Maybe once you've died, you want to stay dead. And he might be changed for the worse. He may not be the Jon Snow that you loved. He may not even remember completely who Jon Snow was. He may know nothing. That was something I was going to ask you about. Was the, the article among the many articles you've written that are Game of Thrones related? Uh, <laughs> what's next for Jon Snow on Game of Thrones? Uh, and among the possibilities you listed was he may not be entirely himself. He may not remember his past. His wounds may never heal. That's a particularly gross possibility. He may not be able to speak. <laughs> oh, man. I, I'm picturing like charades. Uh, he's yeah. released from his night watch. Vows needs a successor. He could return to the Starks and or the North. He could be the embodiment of a prophecy like he's truly the one like the Matrix. 
Um, yeah. That's a lot. That's a lot of possibilities. What do you, do, do you see any signs in this episode of where they might take it? The thing I kept thinking about was, did you ever watch Buffy the Vampire Slayer? Oh, sure. Okay, so when Buffy died, she went to heaven, and then her friends pulled her out of heaven, and she was back on Earth. And being back on Earth amongst the living was actually like being in hell for her. She, and it was so depressing. The whole, that whole season was all about her coming to terms with being alive and having to deal with the day-to-day again. And I kind of feel like Jon Snow coming back to all this stuff it's going to feel a little like Buffy. I think we're, we're going to have to brace ourselves for the, the possibility that Jon Snow may not be entirely happy with what Melisandre and Davos just did. And Davos, by the way, doesn't even really know Jon Snow that well, so why is he so eager to bring him back to life? Hmm, that's true. The, the idea, I have to say, the idea of a surly, resentful Jon Snow intrigues me. <laughs> like he wasn't surly before? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. There was a basic decency to him that I guess undercut that, but uh, yeah. Like, you know, somebody who doesn't want to be here, <laughs> somebody who yeah. doesn't want to be here who's brought back, is, is that's actually some rich, dramatic potential. Yeah, I, I kind of feel like you're going to have a situation where people are expecting certain things of him. You know, they expect him to be a god or in the embodiment of a prophecy or, you know, he's the Lord Commander of the Night's Watch. And he might go, you know what, those vows I took, that's over with. That was until my death. I died. I'm free from that. I can do what I want now. I don't have to do what you want me to do. I could be my own man now. He could he could wander the earth like Cain in Kung Fu. Yes, and get an adventure. <laughs> he could go do whatever he wants. I mean, he has lived a, a, an honorable life as much as he could, and he has given everything that he's had to all of these people. And you know, he was trying to help them in this coming war with the White Walkers, the War of the Dawn. But mm-hmm. is he going to care quite so much if he's already been to the other side? Right, right. I'm actually much more. I just wrote a piece complaining about the sequence, which I just. I know I'm going to get. I get a lot of hate uh, on social media for that, but I'm much more interested in what's next. What's next next week? The weeks after that, where they take this character, and particularly the people who will want him to be the old Jon Snow, even though for one reason or another he can't be that. Right, and like Sansa's on her way to Castle Black. She's expecting him to be the Jon Snow that she knew and loved, even though they weren't that tight. He was kind of closer with Arya, but still she's expecting a certain kind of person. He may not be that person. Yes, exactly. He could be, he could be like that, uh, that, uh, uh, that patient in Airplane who thinks he's Ethel Merman. <laughs> that's, that's what yeah. I, that's, I think that's a little off canon, but that was something that I would personally <laughs> like to see. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I, I guess I, I kind of look at it like maybe all the misdirection they've been trying to do Maybe in a way they've been actually very truthful with us in saying, you know, Jon Snow is not coming back because what's come back is not Jon Snow. Oh, interesting. That's like a bit of legalese. Mm-hmm. That's good. I like that. Well, we didn't say he was going to be exactly the same Jon Snow. That's cool. Right. And they, they were truthful in, the, in that they said he did die because, yes, he did die. You know, you kind of have to be dead to be resurrected. So the question itself of, is Jon Snow alive that everyone's been asking? Well, of course he's dead. He has to be dead in order for this to happen. And for anyone to ascribe any sort of religious element to it, to say he's the embodiment of some prophecy or a, a second coming, a chosen one, the Savior, or a Jesus Christ figure, or any of that, it requires the death and the resurrection. So, so he's like resurrected on a technicality. Kind of. I like that. Well, thank you very much for coming on, and I and, uh, hope to have you on again to talk more Game of Thrones. Anytime.
What's his problem? It's Lieutenant Hurwitz. Severe shell shock. Thinks he's Ethel Merman. You'll be swell. You'll be great. Gonna have the whole world on a plate. Starting here. Start now. Honey, everything's coming up Uh, you hear that music playing. That's uh, music from Twin Peaks, the very first dream sequence involving the dancing dwarf. We're going to talk about dream sequences, dreams on TV, dream logic, dream symbolism, and just the way that people use dreams for storytelling purposes and, in some cases, as storytelling crutches. And at the end, you can ask, did it really happen? Uh, I should also warn you up front that um, we are at a new studio in downtown Brooklyn, which is not finished yet, and they are doing um, construction on it. So there's an excellent chance that you may uh, periodically hear our conversation interrupted. So uh, if that happens, you'll know what that is. We have only limited control over it, and hopefully maybe we'll be able to do some, some freestyle rapping or some trumpet solos or something over it and make it pleasurable for you. Uh, I'm in the studio here today with uh, Vulture contributor Nicole Perkins. Uh, welcome, Nicole. Hi, thanks thank, for having me. Thank you for, for joining us. And uh, also joining us via Skype is Maureen Ryan, the television critic for Variety. Welcome, Maureen. Hi, thanks for having me as well. I'm very excited. And last but not least, you may remember him from last week's discussion of uh, Better Call Saul on the Vulture TV podcast, or more likely his writing for Hit Fix, Mr. Alan Seppenwall. Hey, Matt. Alan, welcome back. It's been such a long time. Who are you again? <laughs> uh, so let's start by talking about, does everybody here remember uh, what their reaction was to seeing Twin Peaks for the first time? Because I kind of feel like that's still the gold standard. Oh, yeah. I mean, I was like the only person I knew who was watching the show, and I was floored by it, and especially when they did that first dream with the backwards talk and the dancing dwarf and everything else. I said, this is like nothing I've ever seen before, and I didn't understand it, but I loved it. Hold on a second. I think the cable guy is here. <laughs> would you like? Would you, I always think of the Big Lebowski. Would you care? Would you care to guess what happens after that? He fixes the cable. <laughs> Story is ludicrous. <laughs> yes, there were dream sequences before that, but they were much cruder and they were much less imaginative. They were often like it was just a dream. Can we talk a little bit about this idea of it being just a dream? How are dream sequences abused? Dallas, man. Let's bring the younger audience up to date on what we mean when we laugh about Dallas. So they, they killed off Patrick Duffy's character, um, and yeah, this was a big shock, and they did a whole season dealing with the impact of it. They also did a storyline on, I think, the spinoff Knots Landing, where a character gets sober because he's dead and they feel bad about it. And then everyone was still so mad that they'd killed off Patrick Duffy that they revealed that the entire season had been a dream and he just emerged out of the shower alive and well. Honey, what's the matter? You look like you just saw a ghost. For a minute I thought I did. What are you talking about? You? Oh, Bobby, it was awful. When I woke up, I thought that you were dead. What? I had a nightmare, a, a terrible nightmare. I dreamed that you were here and you were leaving 
and Catherine was in her car, and she was waiting. And, and when we started to leave, she tried to run me down, but you pushed me out of the way. And then she hit you, and she crashed into a truck, and she was killed. And then we took you to the hospital, and you died. Hey. Pam, I'm right here, and I'm fine. There was so much more in Bobby. It seemed so real. There was Sue Ellen, and there was... So that was one of the early candidates for jumping the shark right there. But it has given us decades and decades of making that joke and making fun of that. <laughs> so you got to balance it out. But dreams uh, have been portrayed much more in much more sophisticated ways since then. I feel like maybe they've been studying up on their Freud, uh, or maybe they're just all in therapy now or, or something. But what are some? What if some of your favorite TV shows that have used dreams to, to as part of the story or just to sort of weave dream imagery into the show itself? For me, it's going to be Frasier, of course. I'm a big Frasier fan, and uh, the dreams came a lot. Um, they were uh, pretty prominent throughout the show, but the one I'm, gonna, I'm thinking about is the impossible dream that came in season four, um, and Frasier keeps dreaming of his co-worker, uh, Gil Chesterton, and he doesn't know why he keeps dreaming about it. He thinks that he's having some sort of latent uh, homosexual dream. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Wrong room. That does it. We're finding another motel. I like the payoff at the end. It, it turns out that Frazier was just bored with his job, and he created his own problem in his head. <laughs> that was a great one. One show that I think built up over time an interesting myth, uh, dream sort of element was Battlestar Galactica with the Opera House stuff. And, of course, right. we could have like a two-hour argument about whether – they landed that ship and, and so forth. But I think that it was an interesting way to get at this idea within the show, which was about shared consciousness across bodies, if you will, or across time and space. You know, these the, the idea that the Cylons were sharing consciousness and that I think one of the bigger ideas of the show is that people over time, even just sort of flesh and blood human beings, have access to some deeper truth or deeper connections than we even are aware of and that the opera house stuff for me helped get at those ideas in a really effective way but i would have to say and i'm so glad i'm getting to mention this before alan and I, I, the international assassin episode of uh of oh the leftovers is to me like that's a new gold standard in terms of how many times have we sat there and watched a dream sequence where there weren't any stakes and it didn't matter? And even if it was kind of okay or, you know, reasonably okay as an episode or even this was an episode where every single second of it was a dream almost and every single second of it mattered and the stakes were real because we knew that this mattered to Kevin how he resolved this conflict. They'd been leading up to it all season. And this was a very real battle for his soul and his sanity at this point. This is where uh, J Justin Thoreau's character, Kevin, um, uh, kind of imbibes a potion, which is uh, going to, it's really complicated to explain, but basically he's got to die in order to go into the afterlife and deal with his demons, uh, which are mainly represented by this woman who... Uh, killed herself when he was in the process of trying to kill her and had second thoughts. It's all quite involved, but essentially it's an entire episode where it starts and you think, is this a dream? When is this going to end? When are they going to cut to him dreaming? And they never do. They just keep going. It's an entire hour, basically, dream logic. Here's the thing, though. I, I, I immediately kind of wanted to jump in and take issue with you. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't feel like that was a dream sequence. 
I felt like that was really happening. I felt like that was like some kind of alternate reality that he was in, which well, I realize I, that maybe that's a distinction without a difference, but yeah. you know what I mean? But to me, it, it sort of has all the hallmarks of a dream sequence or like in that we're seeing symbolism, you know, about the bird in the lobby and what does that mean? We're seeing people from the past. It has the it has the strange, weird dream logic thing that I'm used to seeing in that pieces of that person's history and internal life come to, into play in a weird order that does not appear to be reality. It, it uses the, the classic kind of dream tone, the tonal world of it, the weirdness of it, the strangeness of it, but it uses all that to its advantage to create something that's off kilter for Kevin and thus we're kept on the edge of our seats in terms of we don't know what's going to happen. This opens an interesting uh, Freudian Jungian can of worms here which is we're talking about dreams, we're talking about dream symbols, we're talking about dream logic but a lot of the sort of better representations of dream logic are things where you look at it and you maybe are not 100% able to pull the trigger on is this a dream, is this a not a dream, how much of it is quote-unquote real you know, like I, th- I feel like the leftovers, a lot of the visions and the leftovers fall into that category. And I was rewatching Six Feet Under recently because I did a panel with Alan Ball and the conversations with ghosts. I the first time I watched the show, I thought, oh, they're talking to a ghost. But then the second time I wasn't so sure there was something that felt off about it. And I asked Alan Ball about it and he flat out said, those aren't ghosts. Those are people imagining the people who are gone and every time they appear, they're different. Like like the way that it, that a character might appear, the father might appear to Claire is different from the way he might appear to Nate. You know, in which case we're talking about psychology. So it, I guess it all gets kind of blurred together. I mean, if you look at something like Hannibal, uh, you know, that show functions almost entirely on dream logic, especially the longer it was on, regardless of whether things are actually happening or not. Like you can't take any of it in wholly seriously or wholly as fact. But, you know, whether people are actually having fantasies or being in mind palaces or just this is what's sort of happening, it all feels like a dream or like a nightmare. Hmm. What are your favorite dream moments? I can start by telling you, for me, it's always going to be the talking fish in The Sopranos. Hey, Tom. How's it going? You didn't get sick? Nah. How much you weigh? Eight pounds. Lost a lot of weight. Swimming. The best exercise. Works every muscle group. Get the fuck out of here. You you never exercise once in your life. Anyway, four dollars a pound. You know I've been working with the government, right, Tom? Don't say it. Come on, Tom. Sooner or later, you gotta face facts. I don't wanna hear it. Well, you're gonna hear it. Fuck. I've got one from the X Files from uh, One Breath, which is that, that's just in a very trivia sort of pre- trivial pursuit sort of way. Like that, the whole sequence of things that happened because. As Jillian Anderson became pregnant and they needed to tell, like, have her not be in the show for a while and it's uh, one of its early seasons it ended up like obviously the writers went into a panic to try to figure out how, we're gonna, how they were going to do that but it ended up creating this um, really excellent I think sequence of episodes and one of them just the symbology of it I think is just really spare and very pure there's a symbol of Scully sitting in a rowboat 
and you know there's the rope and you know it, it's very much you know something that we all kind of internalize from mythology but there's also in in i think in that one and then some other x-files episodes she has visions of her father i don't know if they would technically necessarily be considered dream sequences but these visions from when she's unconscious i think are really evocative and can be very poetic you know when they're just used in the right sort of proportion those scenes are very haunting they're very moving in the way that dreams are moving there's something very uncanny and sort of kind of mm-hmm. uncannily warm about them, if you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, I think that they can be used, dream sequences can be used to terrify you or terrify the character. And I think that that's a good tool to have in your arsenal. But I think it can also just, as it is with us, it can be a place where the character is processing something or encountering something. But we, we don't always have the capacity to put that into words as human beings. We know that that's not always how we experience life. Sometimes these emotions are just too profound. And I think that the dream sequence can sometimes be a place where that plays out and, and those unnameable things can kind of surface. Hmm. I think one of the more recent examples that stands out to me is um, Don Draper, his dream and he's choking his ex. And uh, for a long time, I wasn't sure if we were watching a dream or if it was real and then trying to figure out what does that mean about him? Like, does he does he want to kill the woman mm-hmm. just to get rid of his troubles? Like, is that something that he's thought of? Um, so that bothered me. It was really well done overall, but it kind of it, it scared me. Actually. I, I actually, you know, it's fun, you mentioned that particular dream. That was one where when I wrote um, Mad Men Carousel, I spent an entire page un- trying to unpack that dream. And there were a couple of things that, that jumped out at me immediately. One was I felt like it was Don trying to symbolically strangle his own libido, like, like mm-hmm. destroy his, his, his sexual compulsions, his sexual past. But there's another thing happening in it, which is that's the, the season where um, they're haunted by the violence that they're reading about in the news. And one of those is uh, Richard Speck murdering all those nurses in Chicago. And the sole survivors uh, live by hiding under a bed. So that, like right around that time, I believe it might, it's either that episode or the one directly before, he's aware of that story. Mm. So that story. No, it's in that episode. It is in that episode, yeah, and so it's infiltrating his dreams. There's one that i got to mention before we end it, by the way. Okay. We can't close out a discussion of uh, famous TV dream sequences without talking about the New Art finale, which is, I mean, it's the thing we were just making fun of Dallas about, but it was done very smartly, which is you discover that this entire show you've been watching was a dream of Bob Newhart's character from his <laughs> other show, which I thought is just amazing. You won't believe the dream I just had. <laughs> but don't you want to hear about it? <laughs> what is it? Well, I, I was an innkeeper in this crazy little town in Vermont. <laughs> I'm happy for you. <laughs> Good night. No, nothing, nothing made sense in this place. I mean, the, the, the maid was an heiress. Her, her husband talked in, in alliteration. The, the handyman kept missing the, the point of things. And then there were these three woodsmen. But <laughs> on, only one of them talked. That settles it. No more Japanese food before you go to bed. From Television City in Hollywood. And now we'll take a turn from the weird and dreamy to the fun and edgy, or so I hope. We're going to talk about comedies and the tradition of political and sociologically charged material in the American sitcom. 
where did this begin? What's the first, what is the first example of a show, an American television show that was really drawn from life? Like, can we, can we date the beginning of this? There's been comedies with a very strong sense of cultural identity, I think, from, from way back. But I think we tend to forget the ones that aren't maybe in our faces often or the ones that aren't on Netflix, and, you know, but the, the work of Norman Lear. I grew up in like a Lear-saturated 70s, so to yeah. me that was the norm. And then I think in the 80s and 90s, things got much safer, much more more tame, and even into the aughts. And then all the experimentation, a lot of the cool, interesting ideas and creators went into drama. So I feel like comedy is just kind of catching back up to where it was when I was like 10. That's an interesting idea that, that this kind of comedy began to wane. And if that's true, why is that? Yeah, I think people just kind of wanted to not deal with whatever was going on outside. They didn't want that to come in into their television view, viewing pleasure, I guess. But I know I grew up on Good Times, Jefferson's, even Maud, um, yeah. something like that, watching those. Sanford and Son. Yeah, yeah. So those were pretty important in my household and just seeing how... The things that black people were going through were kind of on the screen so other people could see, hey, we're not making this up, maybe. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I remember that. And I and I was exposed to a lot of that stuff, not in first run, but in reruns. Mm-hmm. Like they used to strip them five nights a week on a local station or they ran them after school in some cases. Yeah. Not all in the family. No. That would be great <laughs> if you had Tom and Jerry followed by all in the family. But uh, they no, didn't but even that. seeing Janet Jackson getting burned with the iron, like, you know, at 2.30 in the afternoon after school, that was pretty scarring. That was, and I actually I was thinking about that on the way over here. That was one of the single most intense things I've ever seen on TV, and I saw that when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. Do you remember that one? Yeah, yeah. We're talking about a scene on an episode of Good Times where a downstairs neighbor, uh, played by Janet Jackson, is uh, horribly abused by her, her uh, mother. Didn't I tell you to come straight home from school? Yes, Mama. But you disobeyed me, didn't you? Yes, Mama. You make me very unhappy, Penny. And you know what happens to children that make their mamas unhappy. I locked it. I knew that would be the first place you tried to hide. Please, Mama, I promise I won't be a bad girl anymore. Please, I won't be a bad girl anymore. Please, I promise. Please. It's really just one of the most horrific scenes in sitcom history. I can't even believe it was on a sitcom. Yeah. Uh, it's actually, I don't know what that means, but it's become kind of a joke where people dress up as Penny with the iron print on her forehead, like for a <laughs> Halloween or something. So, I, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, that's kind of a piece, I think, with how... There was so much more interest in doing... I mean, I remember after-school specials that left me scarred for life. Like, oh, my God. Like, life is scary. Why... If you take drugs, you'll instantly die. (laughs) Wow, this is terrifying. But there was much more of a sense, I felt like, when I was growing up, that people felt a responsibility or felt a need or an urgency about, like, making stories about child abuse or stories about alcoholism. And, of Mm. course, we can look back and, like, make fun of it now as very special episodes. And they are, like, you know, there's that cheeseball element undeniably. But I think that, you know, that that went away. And I think – I wonder if any of you agree that, like, 
the whole rise of friends and like must see TV and that that sort of like world beating era in TV, I mean, not just on NBC, but that sort of era seemed to cement, I think, in some executives minds, the idea that get a group of attractive white people together in the big city. And that's a show. And I think that it just did no one wanted to go away from that. And thus, we have the situation where even now in Master of None and the Indians on TV episodes, like, you know, black people just got to the point where there can be two of them on a show after. Right. <laughs> so like, that was a real thing. You can't have two Indian people on a show because then it's the Indian show as opposed huh. to just being a good show. That's true. That's true. And it, something did happen in the 80s. And in fact, I wrote a piece for the 25th anniversary of the premiere of All in the Family, which would have been 1996, about how that sort of comedy seemed to be on the wane at the time. And I feel like that was the era of Friends. It was the era of Friends and Seinfeld and, mm -hmm. and Frasier, which are great shows, but they're definitely not plugged into what's happening in the political landscape at any given moment in the way that things are uh, today, I think, increasingly. Um, yeah. And uh, there were exceptions. Like, I, I, you know, I know, Alan, you're a big fan of Roseanne. Probably everybody here is. But you, uh, that's fresh in my mind because you just written about it recently in our, in our book. Yeah, that was a latecomer. And that was sort of shocking because after, you know, the 80s had been the decade of Cosby and, you know, sort of, of generally whether white or black well-to-do sitcom families. And then suddenly you had this show about this you know, struggling, you know, b barely above the poverty line at times family in, in, in Illinois and they're dealing with just, like, can we pay the bills? Can we, like, provide food for the kids and all of that? And talking about a lot of things that were going on. And that was that was much more Lear-esque than anything had been basically since, you know, the 70s turned into the 80s. Because, you know, as with, like, Reagan coming, and people just didn't want to deal with it anymore. They wanted to turn the page on all of the bad stuff we'd been dealing with for an entire decade. And just sort of, like, put a smile on our faces and enjoy things and... That led to some really good comedies, but it definitely it moved away from things that felt genuinely political, you know, and having that point of view. What do you think, Nicole, are the best shows right now that are in terms of reflecting life? Well, I think Blackish, and maybe I'm a little Whoa, biased. Here comes here comes the floor sander. <laughs> um, I think Blackish is doing a really good job of bringing social topics into uh, comedy. Listen to me. If you have to talk to the cops, there's only seven words you need to know. Yes, sir. No, sir. And thank you, sir. Exactly. You make sure you live to fight your case in court. You hear me? Oh, mama! Enough! Wake up! Let's say they listen to the cops and get in the car. Look what happened to Freddie Gray. Yeah, and what if they make it all the way to the station? Mm -hmm. You remember Sandra Bland? And let's say they do make it to trial. Mm -hmm. You see where that gets us? Don't you get it, Bo? The system is rigged against us. Maybe it is, Dre. But I don't want to feel like my kids are living in a world that is so flawed that they can't have any hope. The second season is so much better than the first. And yeah. I, and I think it's done an amazing job. Yeah. What, and what about Fresh Off the Boat? I love that show. I feel like that one also started to find its footing towards the middle and the end of the, of the season. There are a lot of different things going on in... Uh, fresh off the boat, like, you know, Eddie loves hip hop and the pr the principal of the school might be clueless about this cultural thing or it might be about Jessica and her white friends. I mean, it, there's so many different places that it can go that I feel like it's it's keeping me off balance in a good way. And I'm I'm always anticipating something interesting or funny or s silly or surreal 
coming around the corner that I might not predict because there's so many places they can go. Oh my God, DMX, Dark Man X. You look older in person. Fatherhood ages you. Tired, emotional, crying, yelling. Hold up the same cotton commercial. It's the fabric of our lives, Chief. But I need you to sign an initial this non-disclosure agreement. It's the same one Oprah used on Stedman. So, I can't tell anyone I'm working for you? Nope. Oh, so, what do you want me to do? Baby-proof the living room, lend some peas for Genesis, and make sure to put lavender drops in the cloth diapers. Why don't you just use disposable diapers? Because I ain't trying to leave some big-ass carbon footprint. What do you think about this sort of phenomenon of comedy? I call it air-quote comedy. Like, exemplified by something like 30 Rock uh, and Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. And I would say uh, sometimes Modern Family and what community when it was still on, um, where you're dealing with race, you're dealing with religion, you're dealing with sexism, you're dealing with all of these kind of issues. But it's sort of, there's something facetious about it. You know, like it's, they're shocking you, but they're sort of acknowledging that they're saying it to be shocking. I think part of my issue with Kimmy Schmidt in that realm, I mean, I generally like it, but I think, and this was my thing with 30 Rock as well, it ends up tending to flatten everything. It's like, if everything is just the same, we can make fun of everything just the same. Well, things are funny for different reasons. Hmm. And it's as if Kimmy Schmidt is telling you, you know, we're just going to, make fun of everyone equally. And that's kind of always the comics go-to statement. (laughs) But the thing is, you know, we've gotten beyond that point of talking about punching up and punching down because there's many different directions you can go in. And I'm much more likely to gravitate towards something like Master of None or Key and Peel or even Jane the Virgin, where the multitude of those directions and hierarchies are explored and it's not just from the perspective of, you know, all all people who complain about this kind of comedy are always wrong for the right for the same array of reasons. And I mean, I don't think that they're necessarily saying that, but I think that there's a bit of a dismissiveness there. That I, I agree with you that sometimes it just kind of uh, I don't know if 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 I <laughs> if I think the show is pulling off what it thinks it's pulling off. Well, um, specifically with Kimmy Schmidt, I I haven't pulled the trigger and watched the second season because of this problem with 30 Rock that I have. And I I knew that Tina Fey would kind of double down on the criticism of Mm -hmm. first season of Kimmy Schmidt. And from what I'm hearing and seeing, that's exactly what she did. She doubled down on a lot of stuff that kind of makes you feel a little uncomfortable. Like, okay, I see what you're trying to do, but I... You know, I don't think, like you said, you've earned the right to go there yet. I had a problem with the portrayal of black women in the first season, uh, which is something that is a spillover from, I think, 30 Rock, where Mm -hmm. the black women are all very loud, um, sassy, have attitudes. um, They're big women. um, And they all seem to kind of hate their jobs and take it out on other people around them. When Titus, his character at the end of the first season, is connected to his ex-girlfriend or ex-wife from his hometown yes. or something. Ronald F. and Wilkes. I saw your little video on the YouTube. I thought you was dating. Speaking of weddings, Kimmy, this is Vonda, my wife. I just, I can't trust Tina Fey with black women's portrayal. Mm. Yeah, well, she did make a statement to the effect that she was done apologizing for her comedy. Yeah. I don't remember her starting. 
So, like, <laughs> you know, that's fine. Like, Tina Fey doesn't owe me anything or anyone anything. But, I mean, the, this whole idea that she's done apologizing, I don't think she's ever – like, I, if she, I would love for her to sit down with Nicole and, and have a conversation about this. Like, I just feel like this is – it's just to have Hold on a com- second. I think the cable guy is here. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Please tell him to give you the Showtime package. Um, <laughs> I, I just think there's a great deal of curiosity in these other shows. Like one of my favorite episodes of Master of None, I mean, other ones have gotten more episodes, was the one uh, Ladies' Night or Ladies, Please, or whatever that one was. The one about like, I'm going to be the male feminist. In that episode... You know, basically these guys are competing with each other to see who can be the most feminist. And then at the very end of the episode, Dev's girlfriend says to him, I'm telling you something that happened to me and you are denying my experience. So uh, I was thinking about the whole Brad Honeycutt situation and um, there's a chance that what he did may have been a little sexist. Great. Cool apology. Look. I'm just saying, I'm sorry I defended Brad Honeycutt. Can you at least give me that I'm not some sort of sexist monster for thinking that maybe he wasn't motivated by a crazy sexist agenda when he didn't introduce himself to you guys? I'm not saying that you're a sexist monster. I just think it's weird that your first instinct is to act like I'm crazy and defend Brad Honeycutt instead of just believing me. Well, I guess in my head, I'd like to think someone isn't so awful that they wouldn't introduce themselves to someone just because they're a woman. And what I'm saying is that there are a lot of subtle little things that happen to me and all women, even in our little progressive world. And when somebody, especially my boyfriend, tells me that I'm wrong without having any way of knowing my personal experience, it's insulting. Okay, I get that. Well, I mean, I guess there's no way I'll ever really know what it's like to be in your shoes, so I'll try to do a better job of listening, all right? So I thought that was great because it's like, we're not presenting him now. His one hundred percent. He's gotten it for all time. He understands completely, and I think that that's something that I really like about a lot of these shows. They show the collisions of these things in ways that, to me, transmit a curiosity about them, as opposed to um, just a sort of um, dismissive attitude about who these people are and what concerns they might have. You know, I, I think that any kind of identity politics Tina Fey seems to regard as generally suspect mm-hmm. and that just comes through in her work that episode that you're talking about i was reminded of a episode i guess it was from the most recent season of south park a run of episodes where there was they almost seemed to be making fun of that competitive um enlightened male like white guy attitude where they were turning do you know what i think alan you may have even met, talked about this with me yeah pc principle pc principle yeah can you talk about that a little bit they did a whole season where um south park elementary is taken over by a politically correct dude bro <laughs> and like you know he comes from a fraternity and they're all like going on and on about microaggressions all right pledges listen up congratulations on making it to the final cuts now it's time for the final test. So what you're going to have to do to prove you belong with PC is go out there and check someone's privilege. Finally! Yes! I'm sorry, I don't know what that is. Topher, can you explain? Check your privilege, please. That's getting someone to acknowledge your own inherent privileges and reminding them to put them aside in order to better understand another human's plight. You see, there's still people out there like Brett and Favre who think that when we all stand up, and applaud Caitlyn Jenner at the ESPY Awards, he can get away with one of these bullshit claps. It's called clapping, Favre. What the f*** are you doing? You washing your hands? 
it was clear that Parker and Stone find all of this completely bogus and, you know, the latest pose that people use to, to get what they want, even though no one actually believes in it or cares about it. It's interesting that that was, your, that was what you took away from it, because I got a slightly different impression, which is that that was a case of the South Park guys making fun of this thing that I've noticed on Twitter, which is where um, you'll see sometimes a kind of a pile-on by sensitive white guys, try, each trying to demonstrate how enlightened they are. Mm-hmm. And and even if they are all actually really enlightened on a particular subject, after a while you have to start to wonder if there isn't some peacocking going on. I'm wondering where where are we going now with this kind of comedy? I mean, like, what is the next iteration around the corner? Have we even seen it yet? I think Horace and Pete, we kind of saw it, at least an attempt, which was, you know, because of the way that Louis C.K. was making it, he was able to do topical political stuff in the midst of every episode, you would have characters talking about things that were happening in the election one or two days before we were seeing it. And I don't know that it was always a successful part. It was it was never my favorite part of any episode of the show, but at least it was, you know, CK sort of trying something different and taking advantage of the technology to do it. At a rally today in Des Moines, Trump supporters said that he is the man. Trump, Jesus. What? Wait, why not Trump? Because he's a jerk. Drops out of the debates, and I don't know, I think he'd ruin this country. Okay, so why not that? Like, what's so fucking great about this country? Listen, man, if we vote for him, that just means we want to go down. So let us go down. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, listen, nothing lasts forever, man. You know, that's just how a democracy declines, right? The populace degenerates until we elect a guy like that, and he just ruins what's left. Let's just get this shit over with. That should be his slogan. Trump, let's get this shit over with. It's funny you mention it as something new because I, it, to me it had a very retro feel. Like it was almost like everything old is new again. Like they're, they're taking it back to Maude and Archie Bunker. I mean, to an extent, but even Maude and Archie Bunker were a little bit removed. This, this was very much, hey, we have the ability to film this now and talk about this gaffe that Trump or Cruz or Clinton or whoever made and incorporate it into the show, whereas... With Archie, you know, arguing with Meathead or, or Maude arguing with her husband, it was general uh, topical things, but it wasn't specifically, here's the thing that just happened. I was thinking about catastrophe when you were asking where is the sitcom going next. And I think about um, the characters on catastrophe and how mean and sweet they are to each other. Mm. But in comparison to something like All in a Family where Archie was just mean to Edith and he really didn't express any love or anything like that until she was gone, kind of. And so I think that there is a way that we can move into this area that's on catastrophe where we can be, you know, a little sharp with each other um, and still show that you're in love with each other and still have these problems that everyone else is still dealing with, a parent who may be going through dementia or, or, you know, getting the first stages of dementia, something like that. I think the thing that's happening that's interesting to me and, you know, Everybody on this podcast has written a lot about this. And I think, you know, I, I, I don't want to speak for everyone, but I think it's a very exciting thing. Just the idea that there's now an incentive to have the next Master of None, to have the next Carmichael show, to have the next Key and Peel, or, um, you know, even Broad City, or you could expand it out. You know, Jane the Virgin has gotten a ton of press for a show that does not have a lot of you know, very high ratings or even, you know, there's transparent. TV is now opening up to a wider array of protagonists and creators. And I think that's great. And I think there's more incentive for people, for networks and platforms and whoever is commissioning TV shows, which next week could include my dry cleaner. Like everyone (laughs) needs to stand out. 
You know, you need to have something to sell. And I think it's much easier to stand out when you have a really well-developed point of view and you're not just being imitative and kind of timid in your storytelling. Oh, so you want to talk about hope, Bo? Obama ran on hope. Remember when he got elected? And, and, and we felt like maybe, just maybe, we got out of that bad place and made it to a good place. That, that the whole country was really ready to turn the corner. You remember that amazing feeling we had during the inauguration? I was sitting right next to you. And we were so proud. And we saw him get out of that limo and walk alongside of it and wave to that crowd. Tell me you weren't terrified when you saw that. Tell me you weren't worried that someone was going to snatch that hope away from us like they always do. That is the real world, Bo. And our children need to know that that's the world that they live in. seem to whisper I love you birds singing in the sycamore tree dream a little dream of me that's it for this week's Vulture TV podcast thank you to all of our guests Nicole Perkins Alan Sepinwall and Maureen Ryan and thanks also to Jennifer Vineyard of New York Magazine for contributing to the Game of Thrones segment as always, you can reach us with questions, comments, and feedback at tvquestions at vulture.com or via voicemail at 646-504-7673. The Vulture TV Podcast is produced by Sam Dingman. Laura Mayer is our managing producer, and Andy Bowers is our chief content officer. We are part of the Panoply Network. I'm Matt zoller Seitz. Thanks for listening. All worries behind you But in your dreams Whatever they be Dream a little dream of me Story is ludicrous